praise the Lord. Thank you, brother. So thankful for that powerful song. It's one of my favorites. It's one of my favorites because it is um, it comes straight from the scriptures. Can you say amen? That's what makes any of these songs powerful because it's, we're, what we're really doing is just singing the word of God. You know, in Isaiah chapter number six, um, the Bible gives us the story of when the Lord allowed Isaiah the prophet to get a vision of the throne room of God. And Isaiah said that in the throne room that there were continually for all eternity, eternity past, present, and future, there were angels flying around the throne and what they were singing was holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And there's a reason for that. The reason they're singing it is because it's true. He is holy. He's righteous. He's just. He's gracious. He's good. And uh, for that uh, for all those things tonight, I'm so very thankful. And it's such a blessing to be able to join with the angels of heaven. Can you say amen? amen. And sing holy unto the Lord. And uh, truly praise Him. Brother, if your voice is messed up, I sure couldn't tell it. Um, and even if it was, hey, I wouldn't worry about it. I sure don't. I've lived with it my whole life. I, every time I open my mouth to sing, I'm sure you can tell something wrong. I don't <laughs> but that's all right. The Bible says that we make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Amen? And that pleases Him. And, uh, and so I'm thankful for that also. Take your Bibles. Turn with me back to the book of Hebrews. We're starting a brand new chapter tonight in the Word of God. Chapter number 2. It's always a blessing to be able to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, straight through the Word of God. Because then you get all of it. You're not going to miss anything. You're going to get all of what God's message to you is in that book in its context. And so I'm always thankful to be able... Uh, to do that on a Wednesday evening. I love doing what we've done for the last three weeks, dealing with some current events and talking about how we as the church should react to what's currently going on in the society in which we live. And so we always need to do those things. That's very important, and I'm glad we was able to do that. But it's good to be back just in the expository preaching and teaching of the Word of God uh, straight through the Bible tonight. Hebrews chapter 2 is what we're going to look at in a moment. I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 10, and Lord willing, we're going to try to get through verses 1 through 10 tonight. I hope that's the case. But before we do that, let's review just a little bit of what we learned in chapter number 1, so that all this is kept in context, so that you know what the foundation of this scripture in verse chapter 2 is. If you remember, in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, the writer tells us that, first of all, Jesus is superior to the prophets. If you believe that tonight, say Amen. amen. Now, when I make the statement, Jesus is superior to the prophets, does that mean that the work and the word of the prophets was, was not important? Is that what that means? No, not by a long shot. Listen, the word and work of the prophets um, is extremely important for a lot of different reasons. First of all, it was through the word and the work of the prophets that, uh, listen, the, the people in the Old Testament were pointed to Christ. Amen. The word and the work of the, of the prophets reveals to us not only who Jesus is and what he came to do, but it also reveals to us the, the future of planet earth itself and what's going to happen throughout all eternity. So listen, I'm so thankful for the word and the work of the prophets. And no way is the writer of the book of Hebrews saying that the prophets are not important. He's just saying that Christ is superior to even the prophets in, in their great work. And so we need to remember that. And then he goes on and talks about not only that Jesus is superior to the prophets, but Jesus is also superior to the angels. So let's ask the same question. Does that mean that the angel, the word and work of the angels were not, was not important throughout the Old Testament? Is that what that means? Well, of course not. 
Man, God used His angels as His messengers to speak His Word all throughout the Old Testament. God did a great work through the angelic ministry that He used uh, from Genesis all the way through Malachi. And, and, and even into the New Testament, we see the work of angels in the lives of the people of God. So the word and work of angels who are the messengers of God. How I many you know that's what angels mean is messengers? These angels were God's messengers and they did their job and they did it very well. So he's not at all saying that their word and work is not important. He's just saying that Jesus is superior even to the word and the work of the angels. And so he's making it clear to all of us, and certainly to the right, to the uh, the ones he's writing to, the Hebrew people who have now trusted in Jesus, who put so much faith and stock in the old covenant. He's just making it plain that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant that's based upon much better promises. Now, how many are thankful tonight? We are made partakers of a new covenant in Christ that is based upon much better promises. That's true. For all of those who've now trusted by faith, uh, by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here tonight, you're blood-bought, you're born again, you are made a partaker of the new covenant, the new agreement, which is in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, for us, because He loved us by His grace and because of His mercy. Can you say amen? And so all of that is true for each and every one of us. That's what, that's what makes the book of Hebrews so very, very powerful and important. So let's go on to chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, I'm just going to read through you the, for you the first 10 verses. And like I said, we'll come back and look at it as far as we can. Therefore we ought to give more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Thus at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just and recompense of reward, how shall we escape... If we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken of by the Lord. So, so notice what he's saying here. He's saying that if throughout the Old Testament, all of the things that the angels said actually happened. I mean, if they said, you, if you do this, you're going to be blessed. But if you don't do this, you're going to be cursed. Or you're going to receive the judgment of God. If the angels said it in the Old Testament, and everything they said happened just like they said it. If that's true for the angels, then how much more is it true, the salvation that he's talking about here, if Jesus himself first began to proclaim it? You remember, Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And through his finished work, he made the gospel of the kingdom readily accessible to everyone who trusts in him by faith. And so what he's telling us is, you've got to remember, if what the angels said was important and came to pass in the Old Testament then certainly what Jesus said in preaching and teaching and purchasing salvation is certainly even more important in the New Testament. That's what he's saying. It's powerful. Look what else. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, verse 3, which at the first began to be spoken of by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them which heard him. God also buried the witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Verse 7. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things 
in subjection under His feet. Somebody say amen to that. Well, that's important for you, child of God. If you're a blood-bought, born-again believer tonight, you ought to say amen to that. That ought to excite you because the Bible is saying there that all things has been put under the feet of Jesus. Now why is that important for me as a believer? Why is that important for you as a believer? Well, the Bible teaches as a Christ follower, as someone who's placed their trust in Jesus for salvation, that I am now in Christ. One of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away, and all things have become new. So the Bible teaches that we who have placed faith in Jesus as Savior, we are now, our, our position has changed. We went from being outside of the promises, outside the family of God, outside of Christ, to now being in Christ. But not only does the Bible teach that we are in Christ, but the Bible also teaches that Christ is in us. He lives in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that we are the temple of God. Let me ask you something. What is the temple? Well, the temple is where God dwells, is it not? Well, it's always been. And now, as a Christ follower, someone who's again been blood-bought, born again into the family of God by faith in Jesus, now God the Holy Spirit resides in you. And the Scripture teaches you are sealed under the day of redemption. So Jesus lives in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. What am I trying to tell you? We are in Christ. Christ is in us. And right here in Hebrews 2 it says, All things have been put under the feet of Jesus. So if they're under the feet of Jesus and we are in Christ and Christ is in us, guess what? They're also under our feet. That's why the Bible can say we are more than conquerors. Through him that loved us. That's why the Bible can say that all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Why? Because we in Jesus. And Jesus is in us. And all things are under his feet. Wow, it's amazing. Let's go on. What else he said? He says, um, verse number seven. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crowned him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. How many you know Jesus didn't die for some men? Or most men. Or good men. Jesus tasted death for what? Every man. So if Jesus tasted death for every man, then every man can trust in Jesus. Would you agree? If he paid the sin debt for every man, and then we put that in context with the rest of the scriptures that says God is not slack concerning His 
promise, but he's not willing that any person should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Second Peter 3 and 9. What is the Bible teaching? The Bible is teaching Jesus died for every man because every man needed to be saved. And now by the grace of God, every man can be saved. Why? Because the price has been paid for every man. Are you getting it? He tasted death for everybody. If there was only a certain few that could have been saved, then guess what? He didn't taste death for everybody. Then he says in verse 10, For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation, watch this now, perfect through sufferings. Now, verse number 11. Let's go one more verse. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. Can you believe what the Bible just said? Who is he who sanctifies? Christ. To, be sancti to sanctify means to wash, clean up, and set apart for the purpose of God. It is Jesus who has washed us. How? By his precious blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. All oh, precious is the flow that washed me white as snow. There's no other fount I know. There's nothing but the blood of Jesus that can sanctify us and watch us clean of our sin. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Now the Bible says, He who washes us, who sanctifies us, we are one with Him who have been sanctified. That means we who have trusted in Christ are made one with Him. That amazes me. We are made partakers of all Christ is and all Christ has because of this relationship He's made real to us. Amazing. Let's pray together. We'll get into this. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You that You love us. Thank you, Lord, that you've done for us what we couldn't do. Lord, I'm so thankful for your sanctifying work, for the blood you shed, Lord Jesus, for every man. Lord, make this truth real to all of us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Lord, we need you. We can do nothing without you. Lord, tonight, I'm trusting that you're going to do your work, not because of who I am, because of who you are. Not because of my goodness, Lord, because of your goodness. Help us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Three things that I want to share with you in these 10, 11 verses here. First of all, I want us to see the stern warning that is given. That comes in verses 1 through 4. And then I want you to see the superior nature of Jesus than to the angels. That's in verses 5 through 9. Again, the writer comes back and goes over that again and talks about it from a from a different angle, really, and we'll look at that. And then I want us to see the sanctifier and the sanctified. We're going to see that in verses 10 and 11. So what do I mean by the stern warning? Well, folks, in my day job, what I do day to day, I work for the highway department, and, um, and my responsibility is to put up road signs and maintain road signs in Marion and Winston County. So on any state right-of-way, I'm supposed to get the right sign up and, and make sure uh, it's there and, and giving people the information that they're supposed to be getting, okay? And that's what a sign does, is it not? It gives you information on where to go, how to get to the place you want to get to, how far it is. That's a lot of our signs. 
But then there's a lot of signs on the roadway that are yellow and black. How many of you know what the yellow and black signs are? Anybody? Caution signs. Anytime you see a yellow and black sign, it, it's talking about, you know, listen, you need to be cautious. There's danger up ahead. And, and I put those signs up all the time. Matter of fact, I put several of them up today. Curve signs all over Marion County. One of the worst curves that I know of in all of Marion County is on Highway 43, right up past Stuart Taylor's shop. Y'all know what I'm talking about? There's a, there's a bad curve right there. It's called Gyler Branch. And, and I think that's the worst curve in Marion and Winston Counties. We have wrecks there all the time. I mean, it's almost on a monthly basis. I got to go up there and fix something. Somebody's tore down because they, they run through those curves too fast. So what I did this morning is I went and put up what's called a left reverse curve. Now, you know what a left reverse curve is probably just by hearing me say it. That just means when you see that curve sign, it's going to be an arrow that first of all curves to the left, and then it's going to reverse, and it's going to curve to the right. Now, what do you think that means? That means the road's first of all going to do what? Curve to the left, and then it's going to curve to the right. So it's giving you the information about what's fixing to take place, and it's telling you in yellow and black that you need to be cautious. There's danger up ahead. There's a bad curve. Now, right under that sign, I always put what's called an advisory speed limit, all right? The advisory speed limit up there is about, I think, 40 miles an hour, 40 or 45. The regular speed limit's 55, but the, what that's saying is, before you get to this curve, you need to be running the advisory speed, which is 40 or 45, so that you can safely get around the curve that you're about to face. There's danger up ahead, pay attention, yellow and black right there in front of you. Now, the truth is, very seldom do people pay attention to that sign. And they'll go right on through, and, and me too, I do the same thing. They'll go right on through, not even looking at that, and a lot of times it costs them. It costs them because, again, I've got to go back up there on about a weekly basis and fix something somebody's tore down that's went too, too fast through the curve, all right? It costs you when you don't pay attention to the warning signs. It costs you when you don't heed the warning that somebody's trying to give you. And that's exactly what's taken. Now, with that in mind, let's read together what the, the uh, writer of the book of Hebrews says <laughs> in verse number one. We've got to pay attention to the warning sign. And he gives us one right here. This is not the only place. There'll be probably seven more times throughout the book of Hebrews that he'll give us continued warnings on what we need to be looking out for. Look how he puts it in verse number one. He says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Now, I, I love the King James. I preach out of the King James. I grew up on the King James. I, I'm not against the King James, but I love other versions as well. And what I have is a parallel Bible. I have the King James on one side that I preach out of, and then I have the amplified version on the right side, and that sometimes helps me to understand Scripture in, in a much deeper way because it amplifies it. That's what the amplified version is. Let me read to you in the Amplified Version what it means to take earnest heed because I think we lose a little bit in translation. The Amplified says, since all this is true, how do you believe all that we have heard according to the Word of God, Word of God and, and the Gospel? How do you all believe it's true? Now he says, since all this is true, we ought to pray much closer attention than ever to the truths that we have heard. Isn't that good? We ought to pay much closer attention than ever to the truths that we have heard. And he, and he gives us a warning. Lest in any way we drift past them and slip away. Now, that word in the King James that's translated let them slip in verse number one is actually a nautical term. It's for people who travel on the open sea. 
And, and what that's saying is, if you're coming into port and you're about to dock that ship, you've got to be careful that you don't let that ship drift and get you off the path that you want to be in. You want to get in the right harbor in a safe way, in a way that, that, that is going to be beneficial for you and your crew, everybody that's on your ship. And so that's exactly what the writer's trying to portray here. He's saying that we do not let, need to let ourselves drift from what we know to be the right course. If you believe it, say amen. And he says we're not going to drift if we pay close attention to what we have heard. Well, let me ask yourself, what have they heard? They've heard the gospel message, right? They've heard the truth of the word of God. The gospel message is the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of what he's done for us, and the truth of who we are, listen to me now, who God is, and how we can have right relationship with the God who loves us. Can you say amen? That's what the gospel message is. That's what the word of God is all about. And what he's saying is, don't drift away. Don't let yourself slip. Make sure that you're paying much closer attention to the truth that God has given you. And we all must do that. He says, if you don't, you'll drift. You'll get into a place you don't want to be at. Now, well, that's what he's saying. That's the warning he's giving. But who's he saying it to? Well, potentially, he's saying it to two groups of people. Dr. J. Bernard McGee always said something that I love. He said, if you take all the people in the world and you boil them down to the least common denominator, there's really only two types of people in the world. Let me tell you who they are. They're saints and they're ain'ts. That's what he says. I love that. That makes sense to me. Well, what's a saint? A saint is someone who's trusted in Jesus by faith and been born again into the family of God. That's a saint. And then there's the ain'ts. Well, the ain'ts are just those who ain't done that. They're not yet trusted in Jesus as their personal Savior. Not yet trusted in Jesus. I want you to know if you're in that camp, you haven't yet trusted in Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Can you say that? Don't let this slip away. Don't let yourself drift from what you know to be the truth. When you get a hold of truth, listen, take heed to it. Apply it. Believe it by faith in Christ, trusting Him. That's what he's talking about. So let's look at these two groups. First of all, anyone who has not yet been born again, right now, whether you realize it or not, you are standing in rejection of Jesus as Savior. You are. Let me tell you how I know that. I know it according to the scriptures. Romans chapter 3. Brother Roy, I think, read some of these just Sunday morning. Romans chapter 3 and verse number 9. Watch what the, the Bible tells us there. What then? Are we better than they? No and no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles. Watch what he says. That they are all. Everybody say that with me. All. Say it one more time. All. Let me ask you. What does all mean? All. That's it. All. Everybody. Anybody you can think of. All peoples. Jews, Gentiles, everybody. All are what? Look at the next verse. Verse number 10. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. Look at verse 11. Makes it even more clear. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Whether you realize it or not tonight, if you've not yet trusted in Jesus, you stand in rejection of Him as 
Savior. Why? Because you're in sin. Because you're not really seeking after God. Nobody does. I wasn't when the Lord convicted my heart. I was doing my own thing, going my own way. Living my life as it pleased me. Thinking like I like to think and doing what I like to do. That was me. But now listen. Then Jesus, by His grace, because He loved me, showed mercy on me, a sinner. And the Holy Spirit of God convicted my heart and life. And I began to see my need for a Savior. What I'm trying to tell you is, you don't have to do one thing to be a sinner. You don't. The Bible asks the question, what shall I do to be saved? Do you remember that? Acts 16, 31. There's a story of when Paul and Silas was put in a Philippian jail. Their backs had been beaten bloody. They were thrown in the inner dungeon. God, by His power, miraculously delivered them through an earthquake in the prison. The doors of the prison were flung open and all the men's shackles that were imprisoned there fell off their hands and feet. And they began to walk out of the prison and all of a sudden the Philippian jailer who was put in charge of keeping all the men there and not letting them escape, he was going to stab himself with a sword. He's going to commit suicide. He's going to fall on it. And Paul said, oh no, don't do that. Don't do that. No, there's no need for that. And he said, he came in, rushed in, the Bible says, trembling and he fell down. He said, what must I do to be saved? You know what Paul said? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Him for your salvation and be baptized. That's what you need to do. Give your life to Him. The Bible asks the question and answers the question, what must I do to be saved? Let me tell you what it doesn't ask. What must I do to be lost? It don't. You don't need to. You want me to tell you why? We came here lost. We came here spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, being born by the nature of Adam, being born into sin. Each and every one of us. You don't have to do one thing to be a sinner. We came here standing in need of the Savior. Now, He's warning that crowd against the danger of just drifting through life and rejecting the truth of the gospel message. I heard a story once upon a time of a man who went to sleep in a rowboat on the Niagara River. And he's sleeping good right on down the river. And then when he woke up, he realized he'd gotten way too close to the falls. He had drifted all night long while he was slumbering, while he was sleeping. And now he jumps up, grabs the one oar in each hand, and he's doing everything he can to row back from the falls, but it was too late. He went over the edge and died. That is a perfect illustration of people in their lost condition just drifting through life, thinking they've got plenty of time to do what they need to do and trust in Jesus. Folks, you never know when your next heartbeat is your last heartbeat. You don't. 
That's why the scripture says today is the day of salvation. You never know. If you've got tomorrow to make the decision you know you need to make today. Do not reject salvation. First of all, he's talking to the lost crowd. But now let me say something else. He's also talking to the saints. Look how he words it. He says, see that you don't neglect so great a salvation. Do you know what's possible for you have to been made a partaker of the heavenly gift to been saved by grace through faith because of your trust in Jesus? No, that's possible that then neglect your salvation. It is. And if you think about it and you're honest with yourself, we've probably all done that. Let me read to you something. Dr. Warren Wiersbe, who is one of my favorite authors, favorite preachers, said about this verse. He said, too many Christians take the word of God for granted and neglect it. I've discovered that neglect of the word of God privately and publicly are the cause of spiritual drifting. That's true. When we neglect God's truth and we aimlessly drift through life, Listen to me now. We get further and further away from the God who loves us. Dr. Adrian Rogers says that our soul never drifts toward God. It always drifts away from God. You know, I don't believe you true. I believe that's right. I truly do. Let me tell you why. Because we all still struggle with that old sinful nature, don't we? The Apostle Paul made that abundantly clear. Look in Romans chapter 7 and verse number 15. Brothers, if you will, brother, if you will please put that on the screen for me. Romans 7, 15. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Now don't let the old English trip you up there. <laughs> that, 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 that's... Um, it can, it can be a, a, a tongue twister if you're, if you're not careful. What's he saying? He's saying, as a believer, this is the Apostle Paul writing this now. The one who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. The one who went on three missionary journeys and started churches all over the known world. Who, the, the man who I believe has done more for the cause of Christ than anybody else. It's the Apostle Paul who says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, the things that I know are not pleasing to God, that's what I find myself doing. Anybody else ever been there? You may tell you why you, be, you get there sometimes? Why you struggle with that on a daily basis? I'll tell you why. Because you still have a sinful nature. And you still live in a fallen world. And you still have an enemy called the devil who tempts you. Now, it's not always the devil's fault. Don't believe what Flip Wilson said. The devil don't make you do it. He don't. It's not the devil's fault. The Bible says in James chapter 1 that we are drawn away and enticed by our own lust. By our own sinful desires. That are a result of our sinful nature. That's why Paul can say, the things I want to do, I'm not doing. But the things I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Look at verse 18. Skip down there, brother. Look what else he says. Or I know that in me, that is in my flesh. Look, somebody give me a good definition for the flesh. 
Is he talking about the, 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 uh, the meat and the muscle and the tissue and the bone and the blood that makes up our body? Is that what he's talking about? Our nature. That sinful nature that came from Papa Adam. That sinful nature. He's saying that in that sinful nature there dwells no good thing. For to will is present within me. What's he saying? I've got a will. I've got a desire to please God. Let me ask you something. I want you to be honest with yourself. You've got to answer to me, but you do need to answer this deep down. Where you only know what God only knows. You need to answer it there. Do you have a desire, a real desire for the things of God? Do you? <clears throat> Let me tell you what I figured out. I can try to give people a desire for the things of God all day long. I can stand up as a pastor and I can preach on coming to church every Sunday. But you know, you know usually what's going to happen is it's going to make people mad. They're going to get tired of listening. Let me tell you why. Because folks, nothing I say, nothing I say, it's going to cause them to finally, that light bulb to come on and them to suddenly have a desire for godly things. Now, I hope and pray that I can, I can help people along the way. I hope I can encourage. I want to do that. But I can't give you a godly desire. Only God can give you a godly desire. That's right. So you need to ask yourself, do I desire the things of God? Do I desire the study of the Word of God? Do I desire to worship the Lord? Do I desire to be used of God? We all must answer that question. Paul says, I've got that desire. I've got that will within me. That comes from the new man, the spirit man, now the Holy Spirit that lives in us. He said, I've got that desire within me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. What he's saying is there's a struggle. There's a constant tug of war between that old fleshly nature and now that new spirit nature that comes by new birth in Christ. The old fleshly nature came by my physical birth. The new spirit nature came by my spiritual birth. Can you say that? My rebirth. He says they're struggling against one another. Paul knew it. The writer of the book of Hebrews knew it. We're always drifting away. Like I told you, Dr. Adrian Rogers, he knew it. Our soul don't drift toward God. Our soul drifts away from God. Let me tell you somebody else who knew it. The writer of Come Thou Found. I love that word. I love that song. So true. You remember the words to it. Come thou fount of every blessing. To my heart to sing thy grace. And he goes on to say this. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You ever feel that? I do. Then he says, here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for what? Thy courts above. He realized there's a danger, even for the child of God, to drift, to neglect the salvation that you already have. Be careful that we neglect this great salvation. Why do we drift? There's at least three reasons. Winds will cause you to drift. Last Friday, I had the opportunity of going up to the Tennessee River 
doing some fishing with a brother in Christ. And it was so windy out there, man, it was hard to even throw the reel. I mean, it was hard to even stay on a bank because that wind was just blowing us all over the place. Winds cause you to drift. Let me tell you something else that will cause you to drift. Current. When that water's rushing, it'll take you where, listen to me now, it wants you to go. Instead of the other way around. Let me tell you another reason that sometimes we drift. Not only winds, not only currents, but if you've ever been on the ocean, how about when tides come in and go out? That'll move whatsoever is on the ocean. Listen to something I read this week talking about the danger in drifting and why we drift even as believers. Sometimes it's the wind of worldliness. Let me tell you what I'm afraid of. I fear that we've come to the time when the church looks more like the world than the world looks like the church. Just this past week, what we've been talking about for the last three weeks, gender and sexuality and what God says about that. And again, it's important for us to ask the creator of gender and sexuality what he wants concerning gender and sexuality. If we're going to define gender, we must give the definition of the creator. Amen. If we're going to talk about sexuality and what it means for God's creation, we need to know what the creator says. We've been looking at that for the last three weeks. Just this past week, I read about a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama that was allowing drag queens to come into his church and do what he called service so that people might be more receptive of their lifestyle. Folks, listen to me. We are not called to be like the world. We are called to stand on the truth of the Word of God. To stand for the truth of the Word of God. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the love of Christ, speak to people truth that will set them free. I hear a lot today about seeker-friendly churches. I don't want a seeker-friendly church. You may tell you why? Because our main objective and goal is not to make this church something seekers would be pleased with. That ain't what I want. What I want in this church is for God to be pleased. I want God to be pleased in what's preached. I want God to be pleased in what's taught. I want God to be pleased in what's saying. I want God to be pleased in what ministry we have. I want God to be pleased in how we spend our money. I want God to be pleased in everything we do. Now, if somebody wants to be a part of that, praise Jesus. If God, by His mercy and grace, continues to add to the church, praise Jesus. But listen, our main focus and goal is to make sure God is happy with what goes on right here. Not what people think. If, you, if all you become is a... Was that for me? No, it was for me. Oh, all right. 
I was getting all kind of hand signals. I didn't know what all that meant. That's all right. That's all right. If what we do is try to make a seeker-friendly church, then what we'll have is a church full of worldliness. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We've got to hold up the standard of the Word of God. We must do that. So sometimes it's that wind of worldliness um, that causes us to drift away from that what we know to be true. John chapter 17, verse number 16 Jesus said this while praying his high priestly prayer. Look what he says. John 17, verse number 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. What does that mean? Jesus is making abundantly clear that, listen, we are in the world, right? Each and every one of us, physically, we're in the world, but we are not of the world. We don't think like the world. And when he's talking about the world, he's talking about the world system that is against God and against his truth. And folks, there is a world system right now that is raging, that is against God and against His truth. The Bible gives it many names. Sometimes He calls it the darkness. And we are called to be the light. The world system that is against God and against His truth, we're not supposed to be a part of that. That means we don't think like them, and therefore we don't act like them. And it's important we get our mind right. We take heed to what we know to be true. That way we don't drift. That's what he's talking about. So sometimes we drift because of the wind of worldliness. Sometimes we drift because of the tides of circumstance. Now, what I'm, I've seen this so many times. In my own life, I've seen it. But I've seen it as a pastor in the lives of others. Some, some bad circumstance will happen in a person's life. And man, they'll be on fire for the Lord and serving Jesus. And, and listen, doing the things that, that they know God wants them to do. Being blessed in the Lord. And God's using them in a great way. And something bad, some bad circumstance happened in their life. And usually one of two things happen. Either that circumstance will, will turn them and make them go way away from the Lord. Or to draw them close to Him. Dear brother man that um, I love so much. Faithful man of God. One of the greatest teachers. One of the best Bible teachers that I've ever heard teach God's Word in my life. His son, years ago, just, well, he was, he was the prodigal. He had, he had went way into the far country and got into a lot of things that were certainly displeasing to his father and broke his parents' heart. I'm telling you, jerked the rug right from under him. How I many you know there's nothing that hurts more when your children struggle? And, and that's what happened with him. And he just completely quit everything. Quit his Sunday school class. Walked away from it. The Lord was blessing in such a mighty way in that. People get saved. The, the, the class growing. Like I said, he's teaching so powerfully the word of God. Just left. Didn't see him and his wife in church for about a month. Went over and visited them. And all the way over there, I was this burden for this family, burden for this man and his wife, because I knew what they were going through. And I sat down in their living room, and him and his wife just busted into tears, telling me about what was going on and all the stuff that was happening. And something that the Lord spoke to my heart, I spoke to him. I said, Brother, I want to tell you something. I know you're going through a bad time. I know you never planned this. I know that your son has been taught better. But I said, I want to tell you one thing. You're running the wrong way. Folks, too many times 
people who are children of God who go through terrible circumstances, and you will. You're not exempt from it. Just because you're a child of God doesn't mean anything, nothing bad is going to happen to you. The Bible never teaches that. Matter of fact, it says it will happen. You shall have tribulation in this world. You're going to have it. But when you do, when those winds of circum or those uh, occurrence of circumstances start making you go in a place you know you don't need to go, listen, run the right way. Don't run from the Lord, run to Him. The winds of wilderness, the tides of circumstances, the currents then of the old nature. We already talked a little bit about that. Romans chapter 6 says that we are to reckon ourselves dead to the old man. He's talking about that old nature. The nature of Adam that we've been saved from. So tonight, I want to encourage you. Do not let yourself drift from what you know to be true. If you're here tonight and you're lost, you've not yet been born again in the family of God. Let me tell you something. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. I'm telling you, He loves you so much. He took your sin problem to the cross. He paid your sin debt. And shed his blood so that you could be washed clean. You need to know, listen to me now. You can't keep drifting. There's falls up ahead. Don't wait until it's too late. If you're a child of God and you have been born again, don't let yourself drift away from what you know to be true. What you've already experienced. Because I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you don't want to drift and get into the rocks. You don't want to drift and get out of the place that God wants you. It's extremely dangerous. Believe me, I've been there. Let me read verse number three one more time. We'll close. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken of by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing the witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His own will. He says, this is such a great salvation. We'll talk more about this next week. It was first of all conceived of by Christ. He spoke of it first. Then it was confirmed by the word of those who had believed, those first disciples. And then, God, by His power, did many signs and wonders that proved to everybody this gospel message is true. That was 2,000 years ago. And lives are still being changed today. Can you say amen? Do not neglect or reject this great salvation. Any comments or questions?